Welcome back to The Leadership Project. This is your host, Charles Smith. And on today's episode, I'm sitting down with Andrew Peterson, singer, songwriter, and recent author of Adorning the Dark, Thoughts on Community, Calling, and the Mystery of Making. And this has quickly become one of my favorite books. I've, I've led our staff through it. I've bought it for a number of friends. And I brought Andrew on the podcast today just to have a conversation about the intersection between creativity and leadership. If you know Andrew's work, you may be surprised that he's on a leadership podcast, but beyond being a gifted leader in his own right, I wanted you to have the opportunity to listen to him talk about the creative process, how things are imagined and ultimately created. And I think you'll find this conversation incredibly enriching, not only to your understanding of creativity, but also your understanding of leadership. So in the conversation ahead, we discuss why so few of us see ourselves as creatives and how the gospel inspires creativity and how a lack of patience and discipline limit our effectiveness and even how to encourage your children in the pursuit of creativity. The episode begins with an apology, and as you'll hear, I accidentally insulted Andrew on Twitter 12 years ago and needed to clear the air. So it's a funny story I tell. This is how we're going to begin the podcast. This is The Leadership Project. I'm Charles Smith. Here's Andrew Peterson. So in 2008, I've had a Twitter account for like three days and I'm still trying to figure out what a tweet is, who can see my tweets, that sort of thing. And, and I'm driving down the road one day and I discover my set of CDs and I find one of your earliest records. And so I start listening to it and I'm like, oh my sure. gosh, how have I not lived with Andrew Peterson for the last year? So I tweeted this, uh, just rediscovered Andrew Peterson. He's a once in a generation songwriter and musician, but I'm still not sure what I think about that voice. Okay, so I, <laughs> so, so this was like, uh, oh, I, that's I, so funny. I thought that was private until I tweeted about you. And uh, so maybe I'm sitting on my couch that night and I discover I can get these things called Twitter notifications. Uh -huh. And uh, I get a one word response from Andrew Peterson. It just says, uh, I guess it's a few words. Thanks, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and, that is uh, so funny. I love it. And, uh, and anyhow, oh, I, so that That's great. I, I never think of you without thinking, man, I just need to clear the air. And I apologize. No, dude, and, uh, I, I love it. One of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast is help people see that leadership is not necessarily uh, about influence. It's not about a big position. It's not about titles. Uh, it's really fundamentally about the image of God and the mission of God and what we're called to do in the world around us. And I, I think that means we're called to take initiative for the glory of God and the good of others. And we've talked about that in, in former podcasts. But there's an intersection between uh, that definition of leadership and creativity. And what you do in your book, and that's what I want to talk about today, Adorning the Dark, you anchor creativity not in kind of here's five steps for being more creative or here's five steps for writing a great book or song, but you really start with who God is and therefore who we are and then what that implies for creativity, which is, which is really beautiful. And I, and I think it's emblematic of your other work, but I'd love to give you an opportunity to just talk about the burden of that book. I mean, it's it's kind of unusual for you to do something that's uh, nonfiction, right? Something that's kind of a guide of sorts. So yeah, tell me where the book comes from. Yeah, um, well, it started 
with uh, a bunch of journal entries that I was writing not for anyone else to read, but just as a way of, of keeping the, the juices flowing. Uh, mm. I was in, I was in the studio making a record and felt like I usually feel completely inadequate to the task and um, without a clear roadmap of how, to, how this works. And, um, and I was stuck. I only had a couple of songs, but I had to have 10 songs and I was just like, what do I do? And mm. thought, well, I'm just going to journal in real time the experience, the internal experience of trying to write songs. And yeah. um, be, because it, there's a, I think I quoted in the, in the book, but there's a poem that I wrote <laughs> uh, called What Jimmy A. Taught Me About Art. And mm-hmm. Jimmy A. Bag is this painter and he was Rich Mullins' guitar player. So he's this okay. kind of legend uh, and uh, is a, an artist in every way. He's this amazing dude. And I was talking to him years ago about the struggle and he, he said, uh, so here's my poem. Uh, what Jimmy A. taught me about art. Uh, as long as you're doing something, Jimmy told me, then failure is a word that has no meaning. And so I wrote this poem. Wow. So that, that's, that was the gist of it. But it was just something that lodged in my head that as long as you're doing something, then failure is a word that has no meaning. Yeah. But like, I think what the enemy wants us to do is nothing. That, yeah. that doing anything at all is, is a step in the right direction. And so you know, in this moment, I was like, well, short of writing songs, I'll write a journal. Uh, and so yeah. years later, I looked back at the, the, these, these kind of like, really um, kind of like uh, self, uh, there, there was plenty of second guessing and the, the just kind of um, rawness of me writing about all of the fear, all the insecurity, all the the second guessing that was happening. And I was like, you know what? I've read a lot of books on, on the creative process, but I ha- I don't remember reading anything hmm. that, that was that Frank about what was going on inside. And so yeah. I kind of started wondering if this would be helpful to somebody else. And that turned into the book. One of the things I love about your book is that it's, it balances being prescriptive, right? Here, here's a process for doing something with also just model Like you can almost, um, you can almost experience the vulnerability and and even to use your words, the insecurity of the creative process in the book itself. Like you, you're kind of stumbling towards a solution and a view on this stuff. And, but in that process, I heard someone talk about one of the best ways to teach someone to cook is just to cook a meal with them, to, to, to break bread with them. And you're both enjoying the meal and just the experience of, um, not just knowing about the ingredients, but how do they taste? You know, like Mm -hmm. there's a power in the demonstration. And I think your book does that uh, in a really profound way, especially the the first half of it. But how do those feelings of insecurity and vulnerability, like how do those intersect? Um, You mentioned the enemy doesn't want us to create. The enemy doesn't want us to take a step. And so what does that say about who we are and the way we are created and what the truth really is? Yeah, well, I, I, I've talked about this uh, a lot over the years, but one of the most formative uh, uh, essays that I ever read was, it's called, it's called On Fairy Stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. Mm. And he wrote it, I think, in the 30s, maybe the 40s, but before The Lord of the Rings ever came out. Sure. Um, I think he was probably writing it at the time, but, but it, it's basically his theology of storytelling, how it works. And yep. uh, one of the few wonderful thoughts in this essay is that um, 
we may, he, there's a poem that he wrote for C.S. Lewis about this subject. I forget, oh, the poem is called Mythopoeia. And uh, there's a phrase in it that we, we make in the manner in which we are made. It's, it's a line from Tolkien. We make in the manner in which we are made. And so uh, he, he talks about that in the essay that um, by coining the word sub-creator, he says that God is a creator with a capital C. And in one of the ways that we bear out his image is that we are little creators. And I think that that's pretty apparent. You, you look around at the world and uh, among all of, all of the things that God has made, we are the ones who write poems and stories and are architects and cooks. And uh, uh, we, we take this thing and that thing, we put them together and we make something new and we delight in it. That's right. uh, and so that's modeled for us in Genesis one that God made the world. But uh, I, I love the fact that it tells us that he sat back and looked at what he made and said, it's good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I, I, I resonate with that because I, I am still amazed that a knucklehead like me can write anything that isn't a waste of time. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I still like at the end of a, like if I'm up till four in the morning working on a, on a new song and I record the little demo of it before I go to sleep, I wake up the next morning. The, the first thing I can, I think is I want to hear the demo. You know, I want like, do, will it stand the test of, you know, like the, the morning after the night? Yeah. Usually it doesn't. Usually you listen to it and you're like, well, that's embarrassing. Um, but every now and then it's not bad. And, yeah. and if it's not bad, you, you kind of, I, I get this amazing goosebumpy thrill and I will listen to it 30 times that day. And I, and I just kind of marvel that this thing exists in history and in, in, uh, in the world. And it wasn't there yesterday, but today it's here and yeah. God let me be the one to bring it into being. And, and then I stand back and I say, it is good. Right. Yeah. So I, I think scripture models that for us. It, it mm. tells us that this is how God is. And we also are that way. The problem is, um, I think the, the way that a lot of people think these days is that there's, there are two categories of people. There are creative people and there are uncreative people. Yeah. And, uh, Tolkien would disagree and I would disagree too. I, I think that, uh, one of the, one of the soapboxes in the book is me going off on this idea of there being creatives. Uh, yeah. and people talk about, Oh, I'm a creative. I just, I just can't hold my mouth shut. I just have to put my hand up at the back of the class and say, that's not a helpful way of thinking. Um, right. There is not a class of people who are, who are creative. Um, yeah. Everyone, everyone, everyone has this God given ability to shape the world around them, to build sure. a kingdom. Right. Sure. So uh, that, that looks a lot of different ways. And my friend, Jonathan Rogers, the way he puts it is that, that um, the arts only make up a small piece of the pie that is creativity and not even the most important piece. Yeah. Uh, you know, he argues that preaching and homemaking and uh, cooking, gardening, uh, all of these things are, are expressions of the, uh, the abundance of creativity that is our God and Father. And so, yeah. um, so relegating it to the arts alone is, isn't helpful. What do, you, what do you think's at stake at recovering a biblical view of creativity? That's a great question. Um, well, I think that um, it is a, what can happen is that our imaginations become atrophied. So there's a difference between once again, I'm going to, I'm stealing this from Jonathan Rogers, who's an author and a wonderful writing teacher here in Nashville, but he talks about the difference between imagination and creativity. Uh, You know, when I was a kid, those words were conflated. They would say, people would say, Oh, you're so creative or, Oh, you're so imaginative as if they're the same thing. Um, Imagination is, is being able to see something that isn't there. It's like, it's having this, this, uh, 
this capacity in our minds to, to look, look at the world and either see something that isn't there or to see something that is there that is, but has been hidden yep. by the brokenness of the world, right? And so that's imagination. Everybody's got it. Creativity is then the incarnational work of bringing that thing into being, right? Sure. Taking the thing that is in your mind and, and doing the work to make it happen. And so, uh, so imagination for me, at least, uh, like I, I think that an, an integrated and sanctified imagination is, is, a, is a, an incredibly powerful world-shaping tool. Mm. That for so for example, I again I talk about this in the book, but when we moved to our property in the country, um, uh, Jamie and I got out of out of the kind of heart of Nashville and moved into the. I mean, we're still only ten minutes out of town, but we're on a few acres. And uh, when we moved here, it was this little farmhouse and a big field. And uh, I was excited about trying to like take care of the land and garden and do all that kind of stuff. But I pretty quickly found myself unable to, to know where to start because it was just this huge thing. So in the book, I tell the story of Julie Whitmer, who's a Pennsylvania friend who is a gardener. And she, she came and visited us and measured our property and took a bunch of pictures and then gave us a, a plan. She called it a 30 year garden plan. And uh, it's this beautiful kind of architectural schematic almost of our property with all of the splotches and a list of all the plants that we would need to plant. And, uh, and she imagined something different for our property than I was capable of imagining. I needed her help to see the world that I lived in differently. Mm. And then I hung that painting on the wall and that fed my imagination so that when I went from the, not painting, but the, the plan on the wall to then looking at the front yard that the, the plan represented, I could now see, I could fill in the blank and see what she saw. Sure. And then I began the creative work of incarnating what she had done by building walls and planting plants. And, and now mm. I can literally, a, a few feet from where I'm sitting, I can walk around inside this thing that Julie imagined. Yeah. That's an amazing thing. So, and the thing is that can happen anywhere. It happens in architecture. Sure. It happens in sermons. Like somebody preaches a sermon, they're, they're building something. They're building yep. this kind of like room, so to speak, that they are inviting the congregation to walk around inside of so that they can see the world a little differently. Yep. They can understand the gospel in a way that they didn't before your sermon, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, so that's an amazing thing. And, and when you start drawing lines and saying, oh, well, some people are creative and some people aren't, then, then we forget to exercise the muscle of imagination. We forget that um, if you are n like one of the least artistic people in the world, um, if you think of yourself that way, sure. then you can forget about the fact that the meal that you're going to cook for dinner has the chance to be a room that you're inviting someone into to taste and see that the Lord is good. You know. Yeah. And so I think that if there was this subtle shift in the way we, we saw the way we move through the world that we all leave these ripples behind us yeah. and th those ripples can draw attention to who Christ is, or they can, they can draw attention to, to yourself or to someone else. Uh, and so the point is that we have this, this uh, ability and we just have to, to um, like that subtle shift in thinking may not look like much now, but 20 years from now, it's, it can amount to, your life looking tremendously different. And I think yeah. that, that that happened to us when we lived, you know, moved to the country. It was like, yeah. I read a book by Wendell Berry. It shifted my thinking about this much. And I started thinking about the world differently and 15 years go by. And, um, you know, now I'm wearing mud boots and, uh, not, not wanting to scar the land. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I, I guess that's what we stand to lose is this. And, and sorry, I'm you touched a nerve. It sounds like I'm just going off, but no, it just, this is awesome. It, it's one of my favorite things is, is seeing someone uh, wake up to yes. uh, their belovedness and, and what they have to give. Right. Yep. Um, so, so seeing someone suddenly realize, Oh, I know how to do that. Or yeah. I didn't think I could do that, but I can do that is a, is a marvelous thing to see. And I think that a lot of us are walking around in the world with, with our blinders on. Yeah. And we have forgotten that we are sub creators and that we have this amazing ability to, to look at the world and, and say, let there be light. Yeah. It's first of all, that was amazing. And, and it strikes a nerve with me because I, you know, I, I, I see that phenomenon both in creativity, but also in leadership and that, man, there's people be, because we have a, 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 a wrongly defined view of leadership. Uh, well, man, I don't have that personality. It's the same thing with creativity. I'm not creative. Well, I, man, I'm not charismatic. Therefore I'm not called to step out. And what, what we're really talking about, you just touched on it between imagination and creativity. It's, it's, it's acting upon who we are and what we're called to do, whether it's in creativity or leadership and, and one of the things that I'd, I'd love for you to think about this with me a little bit more, you mentioned some people have an atrophied muscle of imagination, like they're, they're just not working it out. And then I think some people have a wildly imaginative internal life, but something standing between that becoming something like it, it leaving their head and actually becoming a song or a sermon or a building or a, you know, a farm. You talk some in the book about sometimes that's fear and insecurity. Man, I'd I'd love for you to talk about just that process. Like, what does it look like for people to to wake into the reality of what's inside them and to work on that imagination? And for those that man, it's alive and well, it's just timid. Hmm. What do you do with that? Well, I think the main thing is realizing that the gifts that you've been given are for others. Hmm. Like the the if if you have this like wildly imaginative inner life. Um, it's a snake eating its own tail until you share that thing with other, someone else. Mm. Um, there, one of the things I talk about in the book, uh, I think it's in the introduction. I uh, talk about George MacDonald and, um, who was a Victorian Christian fairy tale novelist guy. Um, and he, he talks about in one of his sermons, this kind of scandalous idea, in a sense, he, he talks about how um, maybe maybe there is a chamber in God's heart that is reserved just for you, and and it's like a place where He lets you come to spend time with Him, and He reveals a part of Himself to you and you alone. And and I don't, you know, you you can get all kinds of you can nit, nitpick that to death, but sure. but I I think the heart of it is beautiful. This idea that my relationship with each of my children is unique. Like I love them specifically just as much, but very specifically. And I believe that God loves you specifically. Like, yeah. and, and so you are going to understand certain things about the heart of God because of your relationship with him that I, I need you to share with me. You know, mm. you have this chance to reveal the heart, a little corner of the heart of God to me that I wouldn't know otherwise. And, uh, and so I think that that's true about our imagination. That's one of the things that we can do. We can think that we have nothing to say, uh, or we could think that nobody would ever um, care about this thing that I want to make or care about the yeah. thing that I care about. And again, it's that the enemy wants to silence us. He wants us quiet. That's right. Um, but if you really cling to your belovedness, like that, if you really, really believe that Jesus loved you, which I think is 
every time we sin, it's because we stop believing that Jesus loves us. Um, if we really, really hold on to that truth that we are beloved children of the King, then you can almost kind of feel yourself sit up a little straighter. You know, That's you right. can feel yourself kind of uh, your eyes scan the horizon in a way that says, Oh, how can I share this belovedness with other people so that they can know that they are beloved too. And, uh, and that's, that's what our gifts are for. So um, it, it isn't to say that it's easy. It just, um, it's, it's always going to be a battle. Um, but part of the point of the book was to give people courage. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think part of the recipe for biblical courage is that belovedness that, that there's a security and an identity there that's actually not in your work. And there, there's a balance there because a part, part of your identity, not your fundamental identity, but is your uniqueness in your gifts. You're an arm and not a leg and a nose and not, you know, those sorts of sure. things. And there is this tension in your book. And I, I think just in scripture of we, there's a sameness to the children of God in that they are all called to create. They're all called to lead, depending on how you, how you define that. And then there's also this tension of, no, actually they're all radically unique in ways too that they all have different chambers and part of their obligation to be selfless and to be part of the community of God and, and to display his goodness to the world is to share that. Right. But so there, there's a, I think a lot of times people think, man, it's, it's a proud thing to create. It's a proud thing to share something and go, Hey, look what I made. And I think what you're, you're, you're kind of turning that on its head and saying, no, that's actually a pretty selfless act. It's a courageous selfless act that's necessary. And it's a humble thing at its, I think it's a prouder thing to, to cling to it, uh, to, to hide that under that's a right. bushel. That's right. right. I, I think that the, the true humility is, is looking at your own gifting looking at something that you made, I think C.S. Lewis said this, looking at something you had made and delighting in it as if someone else had made it. Yeah. Um, being able to say after you cook a meal, that was delicious. There's nothing arrogant seeming about a cook saying that the meal is delicious. But for some reason, uh, you know, and it's tricky because I, I'm always wary of people who are like, my songs are amazing. <laughs> uh, like a little bit of little, uh, you know, humility is, is, obviously crucial but there is this sense that like if the point of the song is not to draw attention to you if the point of the song that i'm writing is to to wake up longing in in another or to stir their deep waters of wonder or uh to 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 help them entertain the possibility that there could be a king who loves them like if that's the thing that you're getting at then if it works if it connects with the person then God is the one who receives the glory. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you were just like this, Oh, I just, I just made a meal, but God's the one that made it delicious. Right. That's and right. so I think that the, the more humble thing is to, is to not take ourselves so seriously that we're afraid of failing. We're afraid of being embarrassed by the thing that we're making, whatever it may be. Um, there, I will say that there is a part of me that when I, that, that worries that, you know, this encouragement to just go make and don't think about it so much. I don't want people to think that it doesn't matter that we try to be good at it. That's <laughs> you right. Know, you should still like do the work, like consider it yeah. a craft and like kind of give yourself to the long game of trying to shape this thing. But that's also a way of, of being humble and stewarding, stewarding the gifting is going. Um, if I, if I want this song to, like I said, wake up longing in someone. Yeah. Um, uh, on one hand, good. Yeah. On one hand, you're like, well, I can write it for my grandma and she's going to love it no matter what. But if I, if I'm, 
in this for the long haul and I really want to make it beautiful, then it makes me very thankful for people like George Herbert or Gerard Manley Hopkins who, who worked hard at shaping their gift, gifting as poets, wrote those poems down and those poems made it to you and me in right. 2020 and they're edifying and encouraging and waking up the wonder in me because of their excellence and their, yeah. their uh, the craft that they were able to do. So all that stuff is kind of kicking around in the same boat, but ultimately the, the point is go do something, share, share this with others. Like the point is not you. The point is loving someone else in the name of Jesus. Yeah. Your book says there's, we should have a bias for action, which I, I love that phrase. So it seems like, man, your, your heart is to get people moving. To, to act upon their imagination, to know who they are and whose they are and what that implies. But then there's also towards the end of the book, you're talking about discipline. Uh, you're talking about doing the work. You're talking about discernment and the nature of beauty and that we expose beauty as much as we create it. Um, and that's, there is this tension there. And I think that's why you use the word mystery in the title, this tension between men, we are little creators and yet we're also, kind of archaeologist of the goodness and glory of God in a way too, that we're just kind of tinkering around and exposing with toothbrushes. Uh, yes. But you can't, like you can't discover the big bone <laughs> that we're looking for unless you just start moving. Right. And totally. uh, you, you yeah. gotta, you gotta have both. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like there, there's certainly a tension between the two. And what, one of the things that I talk about is that in, intention trumps execution that people, mm you know, this is good to remember if you're a, whatever the job is that you're trying to do, that people will remember what you tried to do longer than they will remember what you actually did. I can't tell you how many times I have finished a show and felt like it was just a stinker. Like this was, this is the worst, but doggone it. I was trying so hard to make something work, you know? And, uh, and people, there's people give you more grace than you think that they will. You know, yeah. uh, my, one of my big failings imaginatively is that I imagine that people are as judgmental as I am mm. and they usually aren't. Usually people are more merciful than I give them credit for. And yeah. I think that's a, that's a window into my own failing as a judgmental, unmerciful person is because I mm. project it onto my, onto them. And so mm. I, so I think that's like one of the things that for me at least would maybe keep me from action would be um, being afraid that people will be disappointed in me or yeah. that they'll see what I see that I didn't, oh, I was a good try, but it didn't, he didn't quite get there and that then they will write me off forever. Yeah. Um, and that, and that's just not, there, there's more kindness in the world than that. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. goodness. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, so there's that. But then the, the other thing is like you hold that intention with the fact that it doesn't let you off the hook. You still got to do the work, you know, that's right. You don't, you don't, you can't lean on it being just clunky. Uh, you've got, and the, and the, I, to me, the best way to like bolster your, uh, your motivation to, to keep refining and keep working at the thing is a remembering that, that uh, like Eugene Peterson said, like a, a good and faithful life is a long obedience in the same direction. Yeah. And so, consider your gifting as a long obedience in the same direction. Like the point is not necessarily success. The point is obedience. Yeah. And so, um, so that gives you the, the freedom to fail. Right. Um, but it also gives you the motivation to keep going. Like yeah. you fail, but you also brush yourself off and you're like, well, no, I'm still going to keep doing this thing. It doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to keep refining this thing because I, I, I believe that that's one of the ways that I honor my maker. For sure. When I think about ministry, a lot of times, uh, you know, people rightly 
criticize pragmatism, right? But there is a sense in scripture we're, we're called to obedience, but scripture talks about faithfulness and fruitfulness. Hmm. And I, and I think that that's a good paradigm for creativity in that we're, that we have a bias for action. We have a bias for obedience and faithfulness to the extent that we're, we're, pursuing biblical creativity, but we're also working towards excellence and fruitfulness that people would like this song yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that it would, it would be good. My poem would, uh, would be beautiful, uh, in those yeah. sort of ways. I had, I just thought of this, uh, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but when I first started trying to garden, I, I'm not a great beekeeper gardener guy. Like, yes, I do that stuff, but there are people who are way bit more qualified than I am. But like, I remember, I don't know if you've ever tried like a raised bed and growing tomatoes or anything like that, sure. but like it's, it's seems easy on YouTube. <laughs> right. And then you, you go and you do the stuff and, and you try to grow it. And at the end of the season, it's so disheartening when you get one tomato, you know, yeah, or the deer eat them or the, whatever happens, you kind of just feel like blah. Um, but the weird, a weird thing was after I remember I started, trying to plant stuff and grow stuff years ago. And, uh, and about five or six years later, I realized that I had an abundant harvest mm. and I couldn't remember what I had done differently. Sure. And so, uh, I think that that's like the fruitfulness that you're talking about. Mm. I think that it's not something that we can take any credit for. We just realize that the Lord has shaped us and taught us to pay attention and to see the world in just that, that much different of a place of a, of an angle that that we can recognize uh we know when to stop and listen in wow. a way that we didn't five years ago yeah what do you say to somebody that's listening to this uh the the typical leadership guy or girl that's you know thinking about a boardroom and you know leadership as we typically think about it and it's going okay i, I buy it i buy everything we've said over the past 20 minutes i'm, I'm called to create i'm created to create what practical advice would you give them to take steps towards that? Like, like what does it look like to start embracing a life of creativity? Um, if somebody's in like a position of leadership, then my, my suggestion would be to, to begin the practice of seeing every single person you come into contact with as a beloved child of God, mm. who is this like, uh, as C.S. Lewis said, that they're a being that if you could see them in their final form, you would be Radiant. strongly tempted to worship, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's the thing. Every single person you meet is this kingdom-building uh, creative powerhouse. Uh, they have something amazing to give, mm. and uh, and they may surprise you. And mm. so I, you know, I I've thought about that from um, my own life as a, uh, you know, I don't often think of myself as like a leadership person, but you know, when I do a tour, there's a lot of people involved in it. And, sure. And, you know, I spend quite a few plates and, uh, and the only reason it works is because that I trust the people that I'm working with, um, that I work with really great people. I remember hearing some entrepreneur guy say that he only hires people who are smarter than him. Yeah. And so there's a sense of that, like that, like there's a kind of humility, but it's also just like reality that, there are certain things that I just am not good at and I've yeah. gotten really good at um, recognizing when I need to just kind of not worry and let whoever else take care of the thing. And yeah. I think that's a way of, of trusting um, that they're uh, that 
Uh, people are more capable than we give them credit for a lot of yeah, time. So sure. I would say from a leadership cult standpoint, cultivate your imagination so that when you see the people that you work with, you can see not just who they are, but who they're going to be. Yeah. What does it look like to f- embrace the principles of adorning the dark as a parent? Our kids are older now. They're 21, 20 and 17. Um, and our youngest is graduating high school here in a few weeks. And, uh, and they're all like, my oldest son is a visual artist and songwriter. My other son's a drummer and a record producer. My daughter is a, is a singer songwriter. And, uh, and I am so, uh, it delights me that the, that they're all living into their calling. But my oldest son, um, spoke in chapel at Lipscomb university where he's going to school and he was, it was the art chapel, but he was there speaking and there were like 400 of his peers and I was so proud of him because <laughs> uh, he was, he was teaching me, you know, he, he's a more of a visual artist than I am. So he was teaching me about, uh, you know, how to push back at technology, how to see the world better and how, how God made the world in this certain way. And so then we respond by doing this. It was just amazing to hear that. And I was very pleased with myself. I remember being like, Oh, I'm such a, a wise man to have taught my son in such a wonderful way. And I was talking about that with another friend and they said, well, you know, it's not just you guys, it's the whole village. They were like, your kids have grown up in a church and in a community that took seriously um, this calling to, to speak light into the world. If the baseline conversation in the home is about a, our belovedness and Mm. B about the fact that no matter what you're gifting, um, it is, there is a welcome seat at the table of God's kingdom for you. Mm-hmm. Then your kids are just going to kind of flourish. I just think that that's the soil that the plants grow best in is yeah. belovedness and, and this kind of sense that who they are like down to a, the, the deepest level of who they are is a delight yeah. in the eyes of God. And so what, what they have to give is good and beautiful and can be one of the beautiful bricks in the kingdom. Um, then, then you just kind of kind of takes the pressure off. It allows them to grow into whoever they're going to grow into. And yeah. I got lucky, and they all turned into musicians and artists. Andrew, man, this has been a gift to me. Thanks for being on the Leadership Project, dude. Thanks for having me. Hope it was helpful. 